So as I said, I'm really excited to be here with you this morning. We're starting in this new sermon series called, sermon series called The Gospel-Centered Life. And the gospel-centered life invites us as believers to make the gospel, and when I say gospel, I mean the good news of Jesus Christ, make that the center point of our lives. So much so that we orient everything in our life around it. Now, I've been a Christian for about 25 years. I think 25 years next month, if I remember correctly. In that time, I've had a number of highs and lows in my faith. And I'm sure many of you can relate, right? That there have been times where I have struggled. God feels far away. I might feel aimless, or I question and doubt His goodness. You know, in times like this, I'm always warmed by the Gospel of John. In chapter 6, there's this interaction where, you know, Jesus is preaching this really hard message. It's kind of like how, how uh, not to run a megachurch, right? Like, he's got thousands and thousands of followers, and he, he preaches this message, and everybody dissipates. They're like, this is hard. We can't handle this. We got to go away. And Jesus goes to his disciples and poses the question to Peter. He says, do you guys want to go away as well? And I know there have been times in my life that have been hard that I've thought, you know what, maybe it's time for me to go away. Not, not really, but, but I've, I've questioned that. I, I've struggled with that. But Peter responds, and this is what he says, and this is what I cling to. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, there have been difficult and dark seasons of faith, but it's in that time that you just cling to the goodness of Jesus like a lifeline until that storm dissipates and you can see clearly again. But there's also been times in those 25 years where things click, right? It's the opposite experience. It's like your mind is blown and there's this expansion of the kingdom of God where God is looming even larger, and you feel like you see Him, you understand Him and His purposes with greater clarity. I can point to five or six times in my life, five or six times in my faith, where I've really experienced this supernatural expansion of God in my life. And one of the reasons I'm excited this morning is because this, this content that we're going to be looking at over the next two months, that we're beginning The gospel-centered life really facilitated one of those times of expansion for me. Because the gospel-centered life is about leaning into the grace of God, leaning into the work of Jesus, and allowing that to shape our identity. Because let me tell you, we're going to get to it in the the next few, few weeks, but we put a lot of other stuff as our identity and not that. It gives us the opportunity to find freedom from legalism, freedom from shame, even freedom from the bondage of sin in our lives. And so I truly believe that the stuff that we're going to talk about over the next two months can be life-changing, faith-altering in your lives. Does that encourage you? Like, come back Sundays where we go over this overview of the content, and then come to small group on Tuesday nights. You know, when I was in college, you know, I went when I had, like, let's just say chemistry. That was one of my favorite subjects. You know, I would go to a lecture Hopefully this is more than just a lecture for you guys, but you would go to a lecture and then you'd have a recitation or a lab, an opportunity to take the things that you learned in lecture and put them into practice. And our hope is that's what small group is, 
that we take this content on Sunday morning and then Tuesday night, we can explore it a little bit, hatch it out. What, is that? what does it mean for me in my life? How do I put that into practice? So if you have Bibles with you or you can use the pew Bibles in front of you, I want to I just look briefly at two passages to set the stage for us this morning. First, we're going to go to the book of Colossians. Probably looking about like three quarters, four fifths of the way through the scriptures. It, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, the, the, those gospels, and then you've got Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then you have this cluster, and Colossians is the fourth book in that cluster. I always remember it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, God's electric power company. I don't know how it works. That's how I remember the order there. Anyway, Colossians 1, hopefully I've given you some time to find it. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. I'll be reading from the ESV. Paul is giving his usual glowing introduction to the church that he's writing to. And he says this, he says, we thank God, we always thank God, excuse me, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. And listen to what he says next, this gospel is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Right, look there at verse 6. Right, Paul is observing a truth about the Christians at the city of Colossae. The gospel has taken root in their lives, but it isn't static. It's not a once-done reality. Instead, it is dynamic. It's bearing fruit. It's increasing. And this positive trajectory that he describes has been taking place ever since they first learned and kind of that, that gospel took root since they put their faith in Christ. Now, wouldn't you say that that is an articulate and concise explanation of what we want to see in our lives? We want to see the gospel take root and flourish. We want to see it expand, have a positive trajectory. Now, I'm not looking for you to raise your hands. This is a rhetorical question, but how many of us have had the opposite experience? Right? We want nothing more than to see God's grace flourish in our lives. We want to experience you know, God-infused growth, but we feel like we stall out. We hit a roadblock, and sometimes we have that experience that I shared at the beginning where you, just, you almost fall into this like despair, just trying to put one foot in front of the other on that spiritual path that God's put before you. It can be incredibly strenuous. We're not living. If you, if you go through those seasons, clearly it's not effective. It's not increasing gospel in our lives. We're struggling. So where's the disconnect? Right? Paul's lauding the Colossian church for their constant growth in the gospel, but many of us have failed to experience that in our lives. Why? Why is that? Let's flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1, almost at the end of the Bible. Not quite the whole way, but near the end. I'm just going to read it out here. <clears throat> Peter begins... Verse 3, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, 
by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's all the kind of by way of introduction. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Right? These are the things that we want to see in our life, correct? He continues in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, put positively, these qualities help us be fruitful and effective. See what I did there? I just took the negative away, made it positive. They help us be fruitful and effective in our knowledge of the Lord. Now, I think this aligns very much with what we just saw in Colossians. Peter's encouraging the gospel to to grow in them. And Paul's saying, it has been growing in you. You've been fruitful. You've been effective in your faith. But listen to what he says in verse 9. I think this is where we start to see the disconnect in our own lives when we struggle with this. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he or she is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. According to Peter, when we find ourselves not growing and flourishing in the Lord, he says it's because we've forgotten what the Lord, what God has done for us. We failed to trust in the daily work of the gospel that we've been cleansed from our former, and I would add to what Peter says, present sins. So let's dig a little bit deeper into what the gospel means for our lives. The word gospel literally means good news. That's what it means. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that through his life, death, and resurrection, our sins, our our errors have been wiped clean. But too often in churches, I've seen that treated as a static decision that you made at one point in time in history, right? Like 25 years ago, I remember when it happened. I'm not going to give you all the details uh, about it. That's maybe for another sermon. But I I can point to the moment when I said, God, I recognize that you're real and I need you in my life. But was that, is that the only time that I need to trust in the gospel? Right? I recognized that I wasn't perfect. I humbled myself before God, accepted to Jesus, and now I'm a Christian. And everything in that sentence is true, but the gospel is not just the door into the kingdom of God. Too often we treat it as the door, that thing that we got to go through to get into God's kingdom. It's not merely the entry point of how we get inside. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He wrote a book called The Prodigal God, and he says this. He says, the gospel is not just the ABC of the kingdom or of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. Right? By that, he means it's not just the ABC. It's not just the first thing you say that kind of kicks off the alphabet for you, but it is the entirety of the alphabet, the A to Z, that very thing that keeps us sustained, that keeps us going on the path. So trusting the gospel is not just a matter of salvation, but also transformation. Right? The gospel is not just about salvation, but also transformation. 
The gospel is indeed a past event that worked salvation, right? It released us, as we sang so eloquently this morning, it released us from the penalty of our sins, but it's not merely that. The gospel also leads us on paths of transformation or restoration. It's a present reality, a future reality that grants us over time the release from sin's power. And in the coming weeks, we're going we're gonna to explore that a little bit more. But my goal for this morning is to help us rethink how we engage the gospel, that we wouldn't focus on it as, you know, this past event when we received the gospel. That moment when you prayed the sinner's prayer or you, you know, came up front for that altar call, as if that's when the gospel took root in your life. It, it, that might be true. That might be the entry point, but that's not the, the totality of the gospel in your life. Right? When, we, when we treat the gospel as this thing that we accepted, and then we can kind of put on a shelf to admire, we rob it of its power to work daily transformation in our lives. Right? The path of the gospel is one that we ought to walk every day. Now, I want to share an image with you, and this comes from the Gospel-Centered Life. If you come to small group, you'll see it in the booklet. Uh, let me find it here. I love this. And you might not be able to read that all. That's okay. I'm going to explain it for you. They call it the gospel grid here. It's called the cross chart. Um, and we're going to be using this tool to think about the gospel in our lives in the coming weeks. So I'm going, to, I'm going to break it down for you. So you have this line that comes in from the left, and you can see like two little arrows and then a word that you probably can't read because I couldn't find a high-res image of this. Uh, it says time with some more arrows, right? So time is moving from left to right. And that line is, is our life. And before we become a believer... The Bible tells us that we're largely spiritually blind. We might have some sense of morality, right? We might have some sense of right and wrong, but it's disordered because we can't see God clearly. And if God is the author and definer of goodness, it's clear that that's going to be marred. It's one of the ways that the image of God, right? The image of God is in us in creation, and that's one of the things that happened in the fall. It's, if you take a mirror, right? If I have a mirror in front of me and I see my reflection clearly, but sin came in and kind of shattered that mirror. I could still see myself, but it's, it's distorted, right? it's kind of fragmented. And so sometimes that's what our life was like before coming to God. We, don't, we may not necessarily be able to fully understand who He is. But then we, we become a Christian. We hit this point where we recognize that there's a disconnect between who God is and how He says we ought to live and the way that we're currently living our lives. And so we fall, you know, to God and surrender. We humble ourselves. We trust in the work of Jesus, trust the gospel in that deficiency that we sense. And so that's where we hit conversion. And that's where you see, again, that kind of where the road begins or the lines begin to separate. There's a line that says conversion. It's the moment of conversion, that little dot. But then what follows is you see these two lines beginning to diverge, to separate from one another. Now, this part is really important because as time continues, we should see those two lines continue to diverge. Now, what you probably can't read, what that top line says is it's a growing awareness of the holiness of God. A, a growing awareness of the holiness of God. Now, notice, it doesn't say that God is becoming more holy, but our understanding of the truth and purity of God continues to deepen and expand the longer that we follow Jesus. We understand more fully who God is and what He expects and asks of us. Now, conversely, the bottom line 
is a growing awareness of our sinfulness. They say my, it says growing awareness of my flesh and sinfulness. Right? A growing awareness of my sinfulness. Now, this one can be a little bit more counterintuitive because, once again, it doesn't say that I'm becoming more sinful. In fact, if we're being transformed by God's presence, hopefully the opposite is true. But it means that our awareness of the sin in our life is expanding. It means that we see just how deep the rabbit hole of our sin really goes. Now, let me give you an example. So, I first became a Christian in high school, and it was, it was largely through the instability that I felt in the wake of my parents' divorce, that I, I just knew I couldn't handle the weight. And, and I cried out to God, and God graciously stepped in and showed me His love. Right? That was my moment of conversion that I uh, uh, you know, alluded to earlier. Right? At that point, I dedicated my life to God, and over the next several years, I tried to follow Him. I tried to read His Word. I know from from the pulpit over uh, the last several years, you guys have heard me share stories of those early early Christian years of of Chris. I was real legalistic, right? I knew the law of God. It was clear what was right and what was wrong, right? I had a sense of sinfulness, and to be more specific and precise, specifically the sinfulness in the lives of others. Any of you feel seen right now? Yeah. But my window was so narrow, so here, you know, four years later, I go off to college, and, and you know, I, I didn't drink alcohol, right? The Bible said don't get drunk, and so I did not have a drop of alcohol saved from communion until I turned 21, right? Again, legalism for me. I'd go, to, I'd go with my, my roommate and friends on my floor to fraternity parties, and I'd drink their warm Pepsi. They, like, they were legally obligated to have on hand, and we would make jokes about how, like, my drink probably cost more than the, just the nasty stuff that they were drinking there in those parties. I was living a pious life. Right? I was better than others because I was doing what God wanted me to do, right? Well, also in my freshman year of college, I purchased a Sony PlayStation. I've always been a, a console gamer. And I got this thing called a mod chip, right? This mod chip is, is like this little circuit that you can install on the motherboard of the PlayStation. And what it would do is it would bypass the security of the PlayStation and allow me to play bootleg games on the console. So I spent, all, I spent many, many hours in my dorm room scouring these PlayStation servers where I could like download this image file of a disc and then burn it to CD and play the games. And so I expanded my library. To, I had hundreds of PlayStation games. I didn't pay for a single one of them. It wasn't until a few years later that I began to see that what I was doing was stealing, that it was wrong. Everybody else was doing it, so I was like, there's no problem with this. So you can see this. I wasn't becoming more sinful. I was just, my awareness, my understanding of God's truth in my life expanded, right? I I started to see that there were certain places where I was trying to prioritize sin or, or rationalize other sin in my lives. God began to reveal to me that there were things that I was doing that was not in line with his teaching. So hopefully you can see how this works, right? Year one of being a Christian, you might see these very visible sins that God wants to work on, and hopefully he does. But then five years later, your understanding of the perfection of God, you see, man, there's actually a whole lot more hidden below the surface that I didn't realize right away. Things that I didn't think were sin in year one, I'm now realizing, ooh, I shouldn't be doing that. I now recognize that it's a breaking of God's law. By year 15, there, there's, there's even more to work on, right? As long as I on, am on this side of paradise and until I have been perfected in Christ, there is a deepening of my awareness 
and unfaithfulness to God. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this principle because it's really important, right? We need to be honest with ourselves with just how deficient we are. Next week, we're going to discuss what's called pretending and performing as it relates to this, this, this chart, right? Pretending and performing. It's a coping mechanism that we all do very naturally that often means that we don't have to be forthcoming with just how bad the situation actually is. We have a habit of minimizing God's holiness. That kind of, you know, I, I think that's technically, anyway, it, it, it makes those lines a little bit smaller. Minimizing God's holiness, elevating our own righteousness. And we do this because it alleviates any discomfort we might feel because of this gap that we recognize. But as you can see from this chart, whenever there is a gap, whenever there is a deficiency, it is the cross of Jesus Christ that covers the chasm between God's holiness and my sinfulness, those top and bottom lines. Right? The more our awareness of God's holiness and the more our awareness of our sinfulness expands, what happens to the cross? It gets bigger. It looms ever larger in our lives. Because you or I cannot bridge this gap no matter how hard we try, but our daily habit of leaning into the gospel means that it's not through our effort. It means it's through trusting in Christ's sacrifice to bridge that gap, and this is the daily nature of faith, something we ought to go to day in and day out. Tim Keller says this, and I think it's so profound. We get two Tim Keller, TK quotes today. He says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. He's saying in short, we are worse than we want to allow ourselves to believe but we're also more, at the same time, more deeply loved than we could ever imagine. And so this is why honesty is so important. Because when we acknowledge the depths of our brokenness and we accept the free gift of God's grace and God's mercy in Jesus, right, we see the lengths that God would go to in order to bring us back to Himself. And Jesus Himself said that He who is forgiven little loves little, he who is forgiven much loves much. So putting that another way, the size of the cross in our experience on this chart is directly proportional to the affection, to the love that we will experience for God. Right? If we continue to consider the gospel as a past reality, that thing that I did 25 years ago, it's going to shrink that cross. It's going to truncate the cross. I need to lean into this truth daily as God continues to unearth more and more in me wayward attitudes, actions that I didn't even see when I first put my trust in Him. Now, as I said, we're going to continue as the weeks go on, continue to unpack the ramifications of this. But this morning, I want to leave you with a few action items. Right? This expansionist view of the gospel necessitates that we have an increased awareness, both of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So where does that come from? How do, we, how do we kind of open our eyes to this awareness? Now, there's no formulaic answer. I wish I could. Again, I loved chemistry. I was chemical engineering was my major, so I love the formulaic nature of it. It's like, you know, almost like algebra. You put this and this together, and you get this. Add fire, and you get this. But there's not. It, it, the, the Christian life is not about having a formula. 
But I've got three avenues for you that are a great start. The first is this, read your Bibles. I know that can be one of those things that can be difficult for folks. You know, it's so much, you know, even if you love reading, sometimes it can be a lot easier to fall into, like, I just read a, a book called The Way of Kings, which I loved, it was good. If you like fantasy, you should read it. Um, Thousand-page book, read it in a month and a half, right? I don't know that I've ever read the Bible in three months, which would be like the, the amount, same amount of time in it. You know what I'm saying? Because it's, sometimes it, it can be more difficult because it's not just a narrative. It's not just a story. That, it is a story, but it doesn't just flow like that. You know, you get a lot of begats, so-and-so begats, so-and-so. I'm pointing to Mike. He, he made a joke about begats, and anyway, Panera. There you go. I was commenting to, to my daughter last week, so I, I was ill. Thanks, thanks for those of you that were here and gave Dave such a, um, a treat. He, uh, he's funny. He's a funny guy. He's got great delivery. And I was commenting about how, like, nobody laughs at my jokes because I'm really not that funny. I try to be funny, but I'm not. But people usually laugh at me making fun of myself not being funny. Anyway, I'm sorry. Let's get back on topic here, right? Bible, read your Bible. That's the point that I want you to remember. Read your Bible, right? Because there, there are things that we can learn about God just through creation, right? We can know that God is good. We can know that God loves us. There's beauty in that. But we can't truly know God in this way, not fully, In fact, there are many Christians who have made God, fashioned God in their own image. We create a system of belief which revolves around what we want God to be like based on our experience. And and there might be elements of truth to these pictures, but the scriptures are God's revelation to us. Through the Bible, we get to see how God has interacted with humanity through redemptive history. And so, instead of narrowly crafting this picture of God based on my experience, what I want Him to be like, reading the Bible allows Him to tell us what He's like. And I think that's one of the best ways to increase specifically that top line of understanding God's holiness. Now, in addition to this, we also have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus told us that one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit's presence was to convict us of sin. He said that in the Gospel of John. And so when we are sensitive to the Spirit's leading, we can start to see perhaps when we're wandering down a path that we ought not to be, you know, when we're like pirating hundreds of PlayStation games. Holy Spirit can kind of be like that conscience that can help help you navigate the minefields of of, of right and wrong. But lastly, as a pastor once told me, that sometimes it's helpful to have someone with skin on. Because right? it's, you know, especially early on in our Christian life, it can be really difficult discerning the Holy Spirit's guidance. Where does that tug come from? Is that tug just my emotions? Is it the Holy Spirit? There's all kinds of questioning in that. And so Christian community is a, a third place, another excellent, excellent place to see uh, that increased awareness. And I would, I would argue specifically of, of our brokenness. Going back to that example of my PlayStation piracy, what actually revealed it to me was a friend of mine who was in the college ministry with me. I was interested in this new Christian band that had just come out. They're called Blindside. And my friend, his name is Sam, and he had, you know, this is back when, like, nobody had cell phones. You know, we had used Instant Messenger, AOL Instant Messenger. That's how we communicated with each other. And he sent me uh, a couple of of digital files, uh, of, of tracks from the CD. He burned the CD you know, or ripped the CD, took two of the tracks and sent them to me to sample. And after I consumed them, I'm like, man, I like this band. I was like, Sam, give me some more. Let me have some more. And he's like, Chris, I'm not sending you anymore. He's like, that was your, that was your you know, hors d'oeuvre, your sampler. 
He's like, if you really like the music, go out and support them and buy their CD. Because he had a really strong sense. This is the, the age of Napster, right? This is before Torrent and all that kind of stuff. And everybody was just like sharing MP3s. And we were violating like copyright infringement left and right. But everybody did it, so no one really cared. And my friend Sam had this conviction that we shouldn't be stealing from these artists, we should be supporting them. And so he, he kind of, through that, uh, opened my eyes to my unethical, my unethical behavior in the video game realm, something I was blind to beforehand, right? So brothers and sisters in Christ can provide a safe and secure environment where we can experience some of that God expansion in our lives. So I'd encourage you, find some way to pursue one of those three avenues, ex- to explore this, relation, you know, this nature of your relationship with God. Participate in our daily Bible reading plan. I didn't announce that. I should have. We've got some in the back. Reading one chapter a day together to learn more about God. Join our Tuesday night small groups. So there we go. That's, that's all track one. Here's the second take home. Start finding ways that you uh, <clears throat> identify ways where you might not being, uh, you might, you're not being honest with your sins. Sorry, I got a little twisted there. Where are you not being honest with the sin in your life right now? Right, this gospel-centered life book, if we, you know, what, one of the things we'll look at on Tuesday, they have six ways that we minimize sin, ways that we try to explain it away or pretend that it holds less of a, a, a hold on us than it does. They say defending, faking, hiding, exaggerating, blaming, downplaying. Let me, let me read just a couple excerpts. Defending. I find it difficult. Let's see, think about this. Does, this. does this describe you at all? I find it difficult to receive feedback about weakness or sin. When confronted, my tendency is to explain things away, talk about my successes, or justify my decisions. That wasn't anger you saw. It was just zeal. Besides, Jesus was angry too. Right? Faking. I strive to keep up appearances and maintain a respectable image. My behavior to some degree is driven by what I think others think of me. I also don't like to think reflectively about my life. As a result, not many people know the real me. I may not even know the real me. Right? Like, I can't let those folks at church hear me cuss. What would they think of me? Hiding. Blaming. I'm quick to blame others for sin or circumstances. I have a difficult time owning my contributions to sin or conflict. There's an element of pride that assumes it's not my fault and or an element of fear of rejection if it is my fault. Like, if people actually did their work faithfully, I wouldn't need to be a control freak, guys. Right? See, that? see how that works? So easy. As you can see, these are coping mechanisms that we use to prevent ourselves from having to be brutally honest with our brokenness. Over the next week, I want to encourage you to think reflectively. Right? Think reflectively about yourself. See what behaviors or attitudes trigger that sense of guilt or shame in your life, and then start to identify and name what is it, how do you respond to that, you know, yucky emotional feeling, that anxiety it creates. Probably going to start to unearth what some of these, these coping mechanisms are. All right, last, um, last take-home is another diagnostic tool. This is something that uh, they have a, a more thorough curriculum that they use called the tongue exercise, and I think this, this is a great one. There are five laws, okay, that I want you to, and again, this isn't that we're earning our salvation. I just want to be clear on that. But this is a way to show us how far we, we fall and how quickly we fall. Right? Five laws that I want you to obey this week. I'm going to try to post this on, on the Facebook page as well to remind you of it. So for the next seven days, just seven days, 
I want you to keep these on the forefront of your mind and do everything you can to dive into them and obey them. Ready? Rule number one. Do not gossip. Do not say anything negative about anyone. Don't like, you know, confess their sins. Don't mention your frustrations or irritations about anyone. Anyone. Rather, instead, and there's the positive, speak well of others. Here you go. Rule number two. Don't complain about anything. Some of you are chuckling here. Yeah. Who who thinks they're going to make it an hour after service? (laughs) But instead, give thanks for all things. Rule number three, do not blame shift or make excuses at all for anything. And this is a hard one for me because I'm one that likes to make excuses of my behavior. But instead, own your mistakes and confess your sin. Rule number four, do not defend yourself. Even if you feel like the people, person who is attacking you might be wrong, what does it mean to, you know, Jesus was described as being like a lamb that was led to the slaughter but did not open his mouth. Jesus could have defended himself and it was the right thing. It could have been, like, he he was warranted in defending himself, but he didn't. So think about that. Don't defend yourself, but acknowledge, perhaps, where a critique might be accurate. Rule number five, don't boast about anything in yourself. No humble brags here, all right? Instead, boast in your weakness and need. Five rules. I know, there's like 600-some rules in the Old Testament. We're just narrowing it down to like five. So you can see how long you can go this week and maybe how many times you slip up for those five. Think you can manage that? The goal of this is for us, over this next week, I want us to think about our deficiencies before God. Not because God's some cosmic cop that's just waiting for us to screw up, you know, waiting to slap us with a fine or imprisonment, but because, as Keller has said, the cross is where we see that we are more broken than we would care to admit, but at the same time more deeply loved than we could ever imagine. So this week, I want, us to, I want to encourage us to increase our awareness of God's holiness, increase our awareness of our own sinfulness, so that the cross can loom larger and larger in our lives. Because when the cross looms larger, gratitude follows. It can increase our affection to God and increase our affection to our neighbor. Join me in prayer. Lord, continue to reveal to us who you are. That you are holy, that you are completely different from us, that your ways are not our ways. They are so much higher, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Help us recognize the places in our lives that we're falling short. Not because you want to treat them like a sledgehammer over us, but because you want to bring restoration in our lives. Reveal those parts of our lives that we've tried to keep hidden from others, to keep hidden even from ourselves. Lord, it's it's like that home renovation where you got that room that you just keep that door closed and you know it's all moldy in there, but you don't want to open it because then you have to deal with it. Let us be honest with those rooms so that you can come in and start gutting them and rehabbing them for something better. Lord, we love you. Help us love you even more. In Jesus' name, amen.